We tend to view the past using rose-colored glasses. But should we? Now this show delves into the dark recesses of human history to see if the good old days were truly the good old days. This is Kinsey, and I'm Fatal Attraction Old. And this is Ellie, and I'm So I Married an Axe Murderer Old. Thank you for putting up with my mush mouth and mispronunciations. You know, English is not an easy language, and it isn't my first. I can promise we will get better. We're not perfect and always looking for ways to improve and grow the show. Email us and let us know your thoughts. And if you know of an event we need to cover, shoot us a message. We had a crazy week. One of our neighbor's dogs got kidnapped. It just got returned, but man, I can't imagine if anyone ever kidnapped my dog, I'd John Wick them. <laughs> Who kidnaps dogs? <laughs> I don't know. I think it was some kind of family dispute. I don't think it was like a financial gain type situation, but people are crazy about their pets sometimes. You know, it must have been a broken heart or something. You gotta, that dog, you love it. You love it, right? Yeah, you'll you'll do anything for dogs. I mean, John Wick... <laughs> Anyone who's seen the movie knows John Wick will do anything for his dog, including killing dozens of people. (laughs) Well, you know what? We always hear people saying, oh, I miss the good old days and love and chivalry and anything you do for the people you love. But did you know that way back then, Chinggis Khan beheaded almost an entire town to avenge his daughter's heartbreak? Wow. That makes John Wick look a bit like an amateur. And just because we've decided that everything sounds cooler in Latin, our word of the episode is carnifico, or to behead. But that also means butcher, so context matters. All right, put on your comfy jammies and grab your favorite ice cream and spoon, and let me set the scene for you. Back in the good old days... Our story begins in the 13th century, around the time of the 4th and the 5th Crusade. This is also when the Franciscan Order was formed and Normandy fell to the English. Meanwhile, the Chinese were experimenting with rockets, landmines, and handguns. And at the same time, their minister invented a wooden movable type. This period in history is mostly battles. Let's be honest, it's really not a particularly inventive time in history. But hey, Eyeglasses were invented in the late 13th century, so that's something. Better to see your lover with? Well, speaking of which, during a very romantic period in history, and I'm being just a wee bit sarcastic here, one man fell in love with a woman. They had a beautiful relationship with many healthy and non-violent kids. Again, sarcasm. And that's not really what happened. So essentially, a Mongolian woman named Ho Lun took her shirt off and went riding on horseback with a man named Chiladu. I don't know what taking her shirt off meant in this context or why it was even relevant, but the secret history of the Mongols felt the need to mention this very specific detail. I mean, it is a solid way to win a man. So just a side note, the secret history of the Mongols was written after Chinggis Khan's death in Mongolian. Then it was transcribed into Chinese over 100 years later. And then 500 years after that, it was translated into modern Mongolian. All ancient Mongolian copies are lost to history, but this book is still one of the best kept accounts of Mongolian life around the time of Genghis Khan. And I use this book a lot for the research. Okay, back to our romantic horseback ride. 
Now, three men attacked Holun and Chiladu, and Chiladu pretty much by Felicia, leaving Holun by herself. While two of the men chased Chiladu, the world's best boyfriend, the third warrior known as Yusuge, carried Holun into his tent. Now, this is pre-Tinder. They didn't really have dating apps back then. But bringing the literal meaning into swept her off her feet, huh? (laughs) Could be. That's how they swiped right. Or is it left when you like someone? I I don't know. I've been married for so long. I don't know how to swipe on Tinder. (laughs) (laughs) Fast forward a few years and Timujin is born. Now, The secret history of the Mongols state that when Timujin was born, he was clutching a clot of blood the size of a knuckle bone in his right hand. Among Mongolian folklore, this means that he was destined to be a leader. Almost a decade later, and in keeping with the beautiful spirit of romance that Timujin was born into, his dad, Yesuge, started to look for a suitable wife for his young bachelor son. Did I mention that Timujin was just nine years old at the time? Now, they found him a girl who had light in her face and fire in her eyes, and that's an actual quote. She was older than Timujin. She's a regular spinster at 10 years old. Yesuge and the father of this poor girl agreed that Timujin will stay with his new bride in their camp. 10 years old to his nine? What a cougar. Now, as parting words, Yesuge said, again, another quote, I will leave my son as your son-in-law, but my son is afraid of dogs. The author just felt that it was just so important to include this random detail in the original text written in the 1200s. After leaving his nine-year-old son, Yesuge began his three-day trip back to his camp. He was poisoned during the journey home. Upon reaching his camp, the ailing father asked to see his son. So people rode away to bring Timujin back, and Yesuge died. With Yesuge's death, Holun and her four sons and one daughter were not treated well. The courageous Holun dared to speak against this maltreatment. Rather than take care of the orphans, Yesuge's brother also bifelished and left the women and children to fend for themselves. Now this was winter, mind you, and Holun was a good single mom and was described as brave and noble in this ancient text. She provided her children with food and water. She also fed her sons wild garlic and wild onion. Again, very specific details. Yeah. So what does this have to do with our topic? Well, I just wanted to give you a little bit of background about Temujin, who grows up to be one of the most successful and feared leaders in history, Chinggis Khan. This was his childhood, and his mother was a badass. Many people know him as Genghis Khan, but in Mongolian, his title is Chinggis Khan. So throughout this, we're going to talk about him as either Temujin or Chinggis Khan. Strong mothers make for strong children, huh? You know, speaking of which, I have to read an excerpt from this book, word for word. My mind took the words that I was reading and just imagined the scene in my head, and I just couldn't stop laughing. So the story involves the mother, Holun. Chinggis Khan, and one of his younger brothers, Kossar. Early in Timujin's reign, Kossar complained to his brother that he'd been attacked. Timujin replied, and again, this is an actual quote, in the past, you have done nothing but claim that you would not be vanquished by any living being. How is it now that you have been vanquished? So at this point, Kossar is butthurt, and he didn't talk to his brother for a few days. One of the guys who beat up Kossar went to Chinggis Khan and said, hey, your brother is going to stop you from taking over the nation. So Timujin tracked his brother down. 
Mother Holun heard about her son's fighting, and again, back to an actual quotation. On her arrival at sunrise, Genghis Khan had tied up the opening of Kassar's sleeve, removed his hat and belt, and was interrogating him. Genghis Khan, surprised by his mother descending upon him, became afraid of her. The mother was furious. Hell hath no fury like an angry mother. What's up with the sleeve tying, though? Some old Mongolian handcuff method? Yeah, essentially their sleeves were very long and capable of hiding a sword. So with long sleeves, tying up acted like an early version of the handcuff. Taking the belt meant his pants would fall down, maybe? I don't know. I have no idea why taking the hat is relative. I'm just guessing here that removing the hat and the belt, it would be embarrassing, like an early version of pantsing someone. Nice to see that brothers have been the same throughout history. It gets better. Back to my quote. As soon as she got there and dismounted from the cart, she herself untied and loosened Kassar's sleeve and gave back his hat and belt. The mother was so angered that she was unable to contain her fury. She sat cross-legged, <laughs> took out both her breasts, laid them over her knees and said, have you seen them? These are the breasts that suckled you. And these are the ones who, rushing out of my womb, have snapped at their own afterbirth, have cut their own birth cord. What has Kassar done? Timujin used to drain this one breast of mine. Kashiun and Otsujin, between them, did not drain a single breast. As for Kassar, he completely drained both <laughs> my breasts and brought me comfort until my bosom relaxed. He used to make my bosom relax. <laughs> End of the quote. This is a literal quote. So the immature 13-year-old in me, imagine this old lady, kind of like a Greek or an Italian stereotypical grandma, just taking out her breasts, throwing them over her knees <laughs> while yelling, look at what you did to me. I mean, it is a tough argument to counter. <laughs> and it's just even harder to like think about that this is, she's talking to Chinggis Han. So his mother was literally berating him <laughs> by taking her boobs out of her bra. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in other books and other research, Otsujin is sometimes referred to as Temuj. So I do want to say that the spelling differs from one source to another because the translation of the name is often phonetic and not all letters exist in all languages. I don't know about you, Ellie, but I really wasn't there at the time. I'm old, but I'm not that old. I was there in spirit. <laughs> Well, fast forward a few years, and remember that 10-year-old that Temujin was promised to? Well, they got married when Temujin was 16 and Borte was 17. I'm going to skip a bunch of things because this isn't the story of Temujin's rise to power and his transformation into the feared Chinggis Khan, but more about the women in his life and his love for them. In fact, while many of his daughter's birth names were lost to history, we know that four of them became queens in different countries. Some commanded large regiments of soldiers, and at least one became literate. His daughters oversaw criminal cases, raced horses, and even wrestled. While he did offer his daughters hands in marriage to gain political alliances, he never allowed them to be traded for animals or property. When he came to, that was one of his first proclamations. Since his mother and wife were both kidnapped, wife's story to come at a later time, he outlawed abduction of women. He outlawed kidnapping. As I said, he did try to marry his daughters off to powerful leaders. That didn't always work. 
One guy, when he was approached with this offer to marry Chinggis Khan's daughter, replied to Chinggis Khan back when he was still Timujin that his daughter looked like a frog. <laughs> Timujin <laughs> saw that there would be no alliance since he called his daughter a you know frog. He had no use for his man, so he just killed him. He valued his daughters and gave a speech at each of their weddings saying that there needs to be equality in a marriage. In fact, he likened a marriage to a two-wheeled cart. You can't move the cart without both wheels functioning as one. This is really interesting because everything I've heard about him growing up did not give the impression that he was a total softie for the woman in his life. This is why I love digging into stories. You always learn something new. One quote that's attributed to Timujin shows you just how much he valued and honored the women in his family. Here's the quote. My wives, daughters-in-law and daughters are as colorful and radiant as red fire. Then he went on to describe what he called his sole purpose. He wanted to make sure that their mouths were as sweet as sugar. Their clothes were made of gold. They owned the best steeds, and he had all harmful brambles and thorns removed from the roads they traveled. Brambles and thorns is quite specific, although it does make a nice metaphor. Now, despite his love for Borte, Genghis Khan impregnated many other women, and he had an unknown number of children. Although only four sons and five daughters from Borte are ever officially recognized. Borte was kidnapped early on in their marriage, and Chinggis Khan rushed to save her, killing everyone who stood in his way. This next line shows you that it was true love, and this is not sarcasm here. Although it was still night, Lady Borte recognized Temujin's reins and tethering grabbed them. It was moonlight. He recognized Lady Borte. They fell into each other's arms. Romance in the late 1100s. Careful. Speak too loudly, and there's going to be a, the next book talk hit retelling about this story. <laughs> As they gaze into each other's eyes, blood and guts are flying all around them. <laughs> now, shortly after their first son was born, or the son of Borte and her kidnapper, the paternity is never really proven. But Temujin loved Joshi like a son regardless. This paternal love was not reserved for his sons alone. Even his daughters were the apple of his eyes. Now, as I said, Chinggis Khan had a strong woman raising him and he loved his wife and daughters, even the illegitimate one. One unnamed daughter grew up and married Karashar. I'm going to sidebar here. I tried really, really, really hard to find her name, but it was futile. I read about 10 books. Thank you, archive.com and my local library. And all of these books have her as, quote, unnamed, as she was one of his illegitimate children with concubines. There's only one mention that her name might be Timelin, but this book says that the author himself couldn't verify this. Another woman lost to history. Sidebar over. Karashar, also named as Tokushar, was one of Chinggis Khan's favorite sons-in-law. In 1218, a caravan was ambushed and many members killed. The ruler of the area believed the merchants were spies. Chinggis Khan's Mongolian ambassador arrived to demand retribution, and one ambassador was killed while the other two had their beards burned off. Now, two years later, in 1220, Tokashar tried to overtake Nishapur and failed. He was killed in that battle. What a horribly specific type of punishment is burning someone's beard off. I Just the disfigurement and the <laughs> breathing in the... I just... That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> now, Genghis Khan was 
angry when Al-Khwarizmi Sultan did not punish the ruler, the, the mayor of the, the Nishapur area, who oversaw the beard burning of the merchants. He was further enraged at the death of his son-in-law. The unnamed daughter of Timurjin was heartbroken. Now, in my head, again, very active imagination, I have a scene where this unnamed daughter throws herself at her father, tears just streaming down her face. Oh, daddy, daddy, they killed Togashar. They killed my love. And Chengiz Khan would just say, oh, I will make them pay, oh, daughter. I will make them pay. And then she would reply, yes, father, make them pay. Avenge my togi for me. I don't know. I'm just going to assume she called him togi. It just flows better. <laughs> I'm sure the, the scene didn't happen that way, but it could have. I don't know. I wasn't there. I, I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> All right. So Genghis Khan sent his sons to the Al Khwarizmi Empire to attack from every direction. Now, this response was related to more than just Togashar's death, but Genghis Khan had enough of the disrespect that he thought he was getting from that empire. He was just determined to decimate them, not just because they killed Togashar, but Nishapar received the worst of the punishment because of its roles in Togashar's demise. Temujin's oldest son, Joshi, headed off for the city of Jend. His other sons, Jagate and Ogadai, marched on to Utrar while Tuli rode towards Kodench. Genghis Khan himself moved towards Bukhara. They destroyed everything in their path. Cities were razed to the ground and left in ghostly ruins. Rumors of Genghis's cruelty preceded him. One rumor prevalent at the time is that a ruler of a captured city had molten silver poured into his eyes and ears. In other cities, Everyone but the artisans and a few comely women were killed. Comely is in quotations here. The comely women were taken into servitude. Nothing was said about what happened to the artisans. Each Mongol soldier was given a task to kill 24 people. Other stories surfaced of how women were stripped naked and made to fight each other to entertain the soldiers before they too were killed. And before Tuli descended on the town of Nishapur, Genghis Khan received news of his grandson's death at the hand of the Khawarizmis. The molten silver over the head makes me think of that specific scene of Khal Drogo in Game of Thrones. It's a pretty mental punishment, pun fully intended. <laughs> Man, I love that show. Khal Drogo is a bit like Genghis Khan, now that I think yeah. about it. <laughs> Cruel, yet caring. <laughs> All right, so... Fast forward, we're now in the spring of 1221. This unnamed daughter, now referred to as Togashar's widow in all of the literature I read, joined her brother Tuli when he attacked the city of Nishapur. While Nishapur fought valiantly, their defenses were no match to the Mongols' fury. Within 24 hours, 10,000 Mongols were inside the city walls. More and more Mongols kept pouring into the city, with soldiers roaming the street, killing anyone who stayed behind. There was even a special death corps, personally led by Togashar's widow. Everyone was slaughtered, men, women, and children, while Togashar's widow watched. This went on for four full days. The corpses were also beheaded just to make sure they were truly dead. Taking Double Tap to a whole new level. Three episodes in, and all three mentioned beheading corpses. What are the odds? You know, it's like we're going for it. I mean, again, I don't want anyone to go through my my internet history. 
But this gets worse. Then they killed the dogs, the cats, and even the rats. They built three separate pyramids of the men's heads, the women's heads, and the children's heads. Another book states that Genghis Khan ordered when the city was taken that every living creature, from mankind down to the, quote, brute beasts, quote, should be killed, that no prisoner should be taken, and that not even the child in its mother's womb would be spared. By the time they were done, quote, no living creature should dwell within. Even the rat. Now, history does not tell us what happened to Chinggis Han's illegitimate daughter, a.k.a. unnamed daughter, a.k.a. Tokushar's widow, a.k.a. possibly Tumalun. But history does tell us that this is not the first time Chinggis Han unleashed his fury after one of his daughters lost her husband. His oldest daughter, Alakai, was married into the on-good elite. Now, this particular clan did not wish to kowtow to a foreign queen and instead preferred the Chinese as allies. They revolted, and in the process of trying to kill Alakai, they killed her husband. And Timujin said, oh, it's on like Donkey Kong. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, of course. He would not tolerate such an act against his daughter, and he sent an army to put down this rebellion. His directions were to kill every rebel and every male in family taller than the wheel of a Mongol cart. Those are like three feet. This was 10 years before Nishapur's destruction. Now, Alakai was a lot more kind than her sister and prevented this massacre. She said that he only needs to kill the assassins, not the whole tribe. And this clan gladly turned the assassin over to her with no complaints. And she won them over and they became loyal to her. More than one way to skin a cat or revenge murder over loved ones. Now, we all know how cruel Chinggis Khan can be, but he generally didn't destroy whole cities. He often allowed cities to continue thriving and practicing their religion of choice. He took knowledge and technologies from one land and spread it to another. So this just shows you how upset he was at the Huarizmi Empire. Chinggis Khan was a softy at heart when he wasn't killing, murdering, and torturing people. His motivation was to avenge his daughter's heartbreak. But his sons may or may not have also been softies. I read an interesting story about Ogadai Khan, one of his sons. Three men were captured for committing a serious crime, and per Mongol law, they were to be put to death. But Ogadai saw a woman crying and asked her what was wrong. She said that the three men were her son, her husband, and her brother. He said, you know what? Choose one and I would spare him. The woman really thought about it, and this is a quote from the book. I can find a substitute for my husband, and children too, I can hope for. But a brother, there can be no substitute. Ogadai, being a softie like his pappy, decided to pardon all three. It's very sweet, but can you imagine being the husband and the child? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot, honey. (laughs) I can replace my husband. I can have more children. (laughs) But this this story could also just be an anecdote, like a cool story, bro. Because Ogadai, <laughs> after he became Khan, went after and killed his sisters and took their lands. Uh, maybe not so sweet. <laughs> he asked one of his sisters, ruler of the Oirat territory in Siberia, to send him young females for his harem. She refused, and he rounded up 4,000 girls and their male relatives. He had his army rape the girls as their relative watched. Those who survived were sent to work as sex workers across the entire empire. So Ogade undid many of the laws that his dad put into place to protect women. 
and thus his raping and pillaging led to the demise of the great Mongol Empire. Now, the sad part is that his sons are often described as, quote, self-indulgent sons who proved good at drinking, mediocre at fighting, and poor at everything else. Yet we know their names. His daughter's names are lost to history, regardless of their many accomplishments, which often overshadowed their brothers. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's hard to believe we used to do such crazy things back in the day. Just please tell me we don't now assault an entire town to avenge loved one's death. Well, I can't say this has not happened in modern history. With the internet being what it is, if it happened, we would have heard about it. And while people were not married off for political reasons as frequently anymore, many cultures still practice dowries and bride prices. You know, I'm not surprised by that. Now, I'm not trying to get into the morality of dowries and just using this as a chance to learn how things are done in other parts of the world. First, let's define dowry and bride price because those are two separate terms. While this custom has disappeared in the Western world, it's still very much in use in many parts of Asia. Dowries are generally paid to the groom, while bride prices are paid to the bride. In some places, bride price is paid to the bride's family. Because this is a half-hour podcast, I'm not going to get into the minutia here. Oh, wow. I mean, it, <laughs> it's really interesting to hear the difference between the two, because I've, I wasn't familiar that there was purchase price and <laughs> fee, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't even know about that. So it was just very interesting to read about. Now, a study done in 2020, again, that's like three years ago, depending on when you're listening to this. The study looked at 5,200 married girls between the ages of 15 and 19 in two Indian states. And even though in that in those two states, it was prohibited by law, it was still prevalent. In fact, 86% of the survey sample of 5,200 reported a dowry being paid. This research found that it's so deeply rooted in the social and cultural custom that the law is powerless to stop it. The dowry is generally provided to the husband as a way to compensate for the additional economic support for the wife. Now, this research did find that while socioeconomic factors were not really relevant here, those who knew the husband before marriage were less likely to come up with a dowry, and the dowry generally increased with the husband's educational level, with the medical degree receiving a higher dowry than a farmer. And women who were better educated also provided for a higher dowry paid to the husband. And the researchers hypothesize here because she is more educated, she's more likely to walk out on the marriage, so the husband is taking a higher risk. They also found that women who were older had higher odds of paying a dowry. Now, again, this is just one study, and it's limited to two states in India. Very interesting that it kind of almost sounds like insurance in some cases. You know, the women who are better educated providing a higher dowry because of the risk. It's very interesting. <laughs> right, because you would think it'd be the opposite. Now, in other cultures, they practice what is called a bride price. I'm not a fan of that name because it just makes the bride sound like a commodity. In sub-Saharan Africa, the parents receive the bride price. And in traditional Islamic marriages, the bride receives the bride price. And in this case, it is exactly like insurance. So if there is a divorce or if she becomes a widow, she has something to live off of. In traditional Chinese practice of transferring a bride price directly to the bride's parents, they provide a portion of this to their daughter. 
This amount is kept by the daughter as personal property throughout the marriage. In the Middle East and North African countries, the bride price, called mahr, is considered a right to the wife and it's due at the time of her marriage. That's very interesting, especially, you know, you mentioned the idea of it sounding like a commodity. And and I'm sure in a lot of places it is because, you know, mail order brides are still a thing. But the idea of it kind of being the reverse of the dowry where it's insurance for the woman. I've never considered it in that in that way. Learning so much this episode. <laughs> <laughs> now, more cultures practice bride price than dowries, but there are more dowries by volume just because of the sheer population of Asia. Most places have either a dowry or a bride price, with China, according to a 2007 article, being one of the few places where they have both. Bride prices are practiced in Islamic countries, Sub-Saharan Africa, Thailand, Indonesia, Myanmar, and others, while India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh practice dowries. Now, I'm not saying that everyone in those countries follow this practice. I'm just saying this is where it's most often practiced in this modern era. It's wild to think that we live in an era where people are growing ears in Petri dishes and still paying money for marriages. Right? Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm going to give you guys some some figures. These are a little bit older, but from this, the late 80s and the 90s. But generally in India, the dowry is equivalent from anywhere from 60% to 800% of the annual income, depending on where the families are located. I found that in China in 1999, the bride price in Shahia village, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, it was 28,500 Chinese yuan, or about 4,000 in 1999 dollars. That's crazy. Although, if they're not spending money on the wedding itself, it's still cheaper than it is in the U.S. Oh no, you're still spending money on the wedding. <laughs> Shucks. <laughs> <laughs> and different cultures have different sides of the family paying for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Regardless of how I personally feel about this exchange of money for marriage, be it groom price or bride price, I mean, I, I try not to pass judgment because I'm not in that situation. So while I was born in a developing country, my family immigrated to the U.S. while I was relatively young. I can't expect my foreign cousins to make the same decisions that I make as our lives are shaped by our surroundings and our culture. I'm far too Americanized to understand why someone would marry a person they don't know or why you would pay a bride price or a dowry. Is this system just rife for abuse? Of course it is. Is there a better solution? Always. But as Chinggis Han taught us, anger and revenge are never the solution here. Or always the solution. Just don't mess with anybody's dog. (laughs) Too long, didn't listen. In summary, Chinggis Han grew up with a single badass mom. That possibly gave him a different outlook on life. He revered women and thought of them, well, at least his wives and daughters, as equals. They were capable of ruling and fighting. When one daughter's husband was killed, she was so heartbroken that it moved Chinggis Han to destroy an entire city, including the cats, dogs, and rats. As always, thank you so much for listening and for sticking with us. We're new, we're figuring it out, and our quality is only going to keep improving. All right, that's all we got for you today. Join us every other week for another story from the Annals of History. If you enjoyed this, please go on and rate us on your favorite podcast channels. We can't do this without your support. 
And again, if you have a historical event you'd like for us to share, hit us up. You can find us online at Oh The Good Old Days on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at Oh The Good Old Days. If that's Oh The Good Old Days with old and days sharing a D. We need your support and every five-star rating help. You know what, Ellie? Maybe the good old days weren't so good after all. <laughs>